God, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. The good news for the hope of Christ Jesus. In a world that is full of trouble, we are thankful that He has overcome the world and He will come again and make this world right. Um, uh, honestly, the closer that this sermon has gotten as the service has gone, I'm going to speak very openly about this, the more and more I feel the need to shrink back from preaching. So, that's an awkward feeling for me. I don't normally feel that way. And so, here's what I think is happening. So, I was sitting over there and praying, and the closer it time, the closer it came to preaching, the less I wanted to preach. I think that is the case because of what this text is teaching. We forget, right, that we have spiritual warfare in the world, and there's spiritual warfare in this place. And if there is a passage in the Bible that the evil one hates more than any other, this has got to be in the top ten list for him. I'm going to preach it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to skip most of what I had in the first about five minutes. I'm just going to read it, and we're going to jump in and preach the greatness of the glory of Christ. Let's pray again and ask for his help. Ready us to receive your word, and may it change us. Christ, you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Be exalted in this hour. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8 says this. This is coming out of verses 1 to 4, where Paul is calling the Philippian church to humility, to think of others as better than self. Uh, and he's going to the preeminent example of that in the root, the core that that's grounded in, in the person of Christ Jesus. This is the core, this is the foundation. He's calling us to a life of humility for the unity, for the sake of the glory of the God in heaven, the one God in three persons, as is illustrated in the person of Christ. And he then goes to talk about what this humility looks like in Jesus. Verses 5 to 8. Note the call here. The command to have this mind. There's the command. Have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours. He's writing to the church. This is Christians. Have this mind in among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I've entitled this sermon, The Mind of Christ. I take that from that command there in verse 5. Have this mind. This mind which is yours if you are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, have this way of thinking. Have this kind of attitude. Uh, it's a continuation again of that call for the humility to have unity in the glory of Christ. And so here's what I'm going to do. There are some glorious Christological truths in this passage. Things that are, like we read in that Apostles' Creed, are just foundational to what it means to be a Christian. And so what I'm going to do is, is we're going to look at those Christological truths, those sort of theological truths, first off. And the first, I'm going to do it briefly, and then we're going to jump in to what Paul is trying to do in this call of humility. So first off, just some doctrine 
Just some theological doctrine that is foundational to Christians. The doctrine of Christ. I see four doctrines here. Four doctrines in these verses, 5 to 8. Namely, that Christ has the fullness of deity, the fullness of humanity, the fullness of obedience, and the fullness of exaltation. You see that, and I'm going to grab for that last one, verses 9 down to 11. So first off, take a look there. Verses 5 and 6, There, Jesus Christ has the fullness of deity. That is to say, He's fully God. That's who Jesus was, that's who He is. He's fully God. That's pretty easy to see there in verse 6. Though He was in the form of God. Now that word form could sound like Paul is saying, He kind of posed as God. He wasn't really God. He just kind of posed as God. But that's not what's going on there. That word could also be translated nature. That's how the NIV translates it. Who being in the nature of God. So the nature or form of Jesus was God. So Jesus didn't possess some deity. He was fully deity. He was fully God. Paul says he was in the form or nature of God. That's to say he was God. Now this immediately, friends, you should know, sets us apart from Jews, from Muslims that do not affirm the deity of Christ. It also sets us apart from Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons that believe that Jesus became God. Another way, in other words, there was a day that, that Jesus was not. So we don't believe that. That's not what Christians have historically ever believed. So the reality is, friends, we needed Jesus to be fully God because we needed the perfection, the holiness of God in order to be in the presence of God. Therefore, Christ came with the fullness of holiness in order that it could be transferred or counted to those that have faith in Christ's atoning death on the cross. And so Jesus had the fullness of deity. That is to say, He had the fullness of God. Secondly, Jesus had the fullness of humanity. You can see that there in verse 7 and 8. Where it says, Jesus emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. And when it says there that He emptied Himself, friends, that doesn't mean, listen to me, it doesn't mean that He emptied Himself of His humanity. It's not, I'm sorry, of His deity. It doesn't mean that He emptied Himself of His deity. It's not what that's saying. What it means there is exactly what it says in the very next phrase. What it means is, is he, what Paul's trying to communicate is that he was God that became man. That's what he's trying to say. And so that's what the emptiness means. I love how Alec Mordier says this. He says this verse isn't teaching Jesus emptied himself of his deity. Instead, this verse is teaching that Jesus emptied himself into humanity. He emptied, him, emptied himself into humanity. So in other words, Jesus set aside the radiant glow of His glory and of His majesty by putting on flesh, but He never lost His deity. So it's addition without subtraction. Now you get a picture of this at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus said that Peter, James, and John would see the kingdom of God with power. And if you're familiar with that story, there on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured into what He actually was, but His flesh was hiding. Namely, that He possessed the radiant glow and majesty of God. Peter, James, and John saw that. And so for Jesus, though, to defeat the wages of sin, which is death, Jesus needed to take on flesh. And that's what He did. He became fully Man, Jesus was fully God and fully man. He wasn't half God, half man. He was fully God, fully man. So we see his humanity when he gets hungry, when he gets thirsty. But most notably, we see his humanity when it dies on the cross. 
Thirdly, Jesus has Christ has the fullness of obedience. Verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. We know from Hebrews 4.15, uh, says that he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So unlike all of us, Jesus Christ was fully obedient in his mission to know the Father and love the Father through his obedience. That's what made his sacrifice on the cross acceptable for sinners. Because he was fully obedient. Sometimes I ask my kids, can I die for your sins? And of course the answer to that is no. I cannot die for their sins because my sacrifice is mixed. It's clouded. It's sinful. So there was only one that was not clouded or sinful, and that was the atoning, obedient sacrifice of Christ, who was fully God and fully man, therefore able to reconcile man to God because he was the God-man. And he was fully obedient. So he made that, his obedience made that sacrifice acceptable. Which, by the way, explains why Christ is the only way to salvation. Because any other sacrifice, any other sacrifice would be clouded or marred or messed up by sin. Only through Christ was there a perfectly obedient God-man. Therefore, he alone is able to reconcile man to God and count those that believe him obedient or righteous. And so Jesus was fully God, fully man, fully obedient. And fourthly, Jesus has the fullness of exaltation. You see this in the verses that we'll look at next week. By the way, what a great passage for Easter. Take a look down there at verses 9 to 11. Somebody asked me this week, did you plan that? Well, no, but the Lord apparently did. So, praise the Lord. So, the, Jesus has a fullness of exaltation. Verses 9 to 11 say that God the Father has highly exalted Him and bestowed or given to Him the name that is above every name. And you'll note there in verse 11, it goes on to talk about how that then brings about the glory to the Father. So when you bring all this together, this is why our church's mission statement reads that we exist to make disciples, disciples, learners, followers, that delight. There's the completion of joy. Chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy. In the supremacy, or we could say exaltation, verse 11, of Jesus Christ. So the one that was and is fully God, fully man, fully obedient, and full of everlasting exaltation to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you deny any aspect of those foundational truths, friend, you operate outside of what it means to be a Christian, redeemed by the blood of Christ. So I didn't say anything that Christians haven't believed for over 2,000 years. But I need to note that it's not enough just to believe those things with your mind that those are intellectually true statements. You've got to be more than it's got to be more than that, because the reality is, friends, the demons believe those facts. They know those things better than us. Right. They know that Jesus was fully God and fully man, full of obedience and full of exaltation. The demons believe that the difference between the demons and Christians is we submit ourselves to those truths. We humble ourselves under those truths. The demons do not. And that's what Paul is after in this passage, humbling ourselves before God and before our fellow man. He's calling, Paul is, he's calling Grace Church Philippi, this church, to not only believe these realities with their minds, but to submit themselves to the realities, these realities by cultivating the same kind of humility that Christ displayed in the incarnation. Incarnation is just a word to say that God became man. That's the thrust of Paul's teaching here. He's after this humility. Complete my joy, verse, chapter 2, verse 2. 
Complete my joy, Paul is saying, by being humble as Jesus is humble. Have that kind of a mind. The mind of Christ, which is yours, Christian. And so let's, let's exit the environment of the classroom now. Okay? And let's now go out to the place where these, we see these things really meeting us in the day-to-day life. Now I see in this passage five ways that Christ modeled what it means to complete joy by being humble. And remember, I'm grabbing that completion of joy again from verse 2 up there. Paul says, complete my joy. And I don't think his joy is different from any other Christian's joy. Five ways we see Christ modeling what it means to complete joy by being humble. First way, the way to be full of joy is to have a mind that empties self. The way to the fullness of joy is to have a mind, Paul says, to have this mind, have a mind that empties self. Now, as you look down in that passage, verses 5 to 8, when you look down in that passage, you should know, notice a kind of cascading down. You should notice that. Look, Jesus was in the form of God. He emptied himself by be, being born in the likeness of men. We took a step down. He was obedient to death. We took another step down. Even death on a cross. Another step down. Only to what in verse 9 and 11? Go up. Which is the opposite narrative of this world. They're trying to get you to go up. But at the end, if you deny Christ, you only go down. So that's the mind Paul is encouraging us to have. Just to keep going down that in the end we would be lifted up. So that's the mind Paul is encouraging us to have. Something is challenging this local church's unity. And Paul is showing them that the way to joy is not having a mind that is full of self. But instead it's having a mind that empties self. So verse 7. Look there, verse 7. Though Jesus was in the form of God, He what? Emptied Himself. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. And already again, I already talked about what that empty himself means. It means he emptied himself into humanity. He did not lose his deity. And at this point, as I was working through the sermon, I thought about trying to illustrate this idea of God emptying himself into man in order to help you understand more. But every illustration I thought of was borderline blasphemous. So I, just, I can't illustrate. God became a man. There's nothing even remotely that we can talk about that way. And everything we try to mention would probably not honor Christ. So I'm not even going to try. God became a man. He emptied himself into humanity. Christ had the rights and privileges of God, and yet he did not use those privileges to his own advantage. He wasn't full of himself, though unlike us, he could have been. Right? Instead of holding on to those, this is verse 6, instead of holding on to those privileges, he stopped grasping at them, those privileges. And he emptied themselves, emptied himself into humanity. He didn't hold on to those. In other words, he set them aside. Emptied himself. Now, I don't want you to miss this word himself. You see that where in the passage? I've read this verse a hundred times, and I don't think I've ever noticed that word until this week. The emphasis of that word, himself. You see that word? He emptied himself. So by emphasizing that word himself, we find that Jesus did this willingly. The Father sent the Son, and the Son set aside his privileges as the Son of God emptied himself into humanity willingly. Reminded of the words of Jesus in John 10, I lay down my life of my own accord. Yes, Jesus incarnated himself into man in order to obey the Father, but he did it willingly when you think about the horror of the cross guys 
Let that be your consideration. He went there for you, Christian, willingly. To suffer that. And in that we learn the kind of mind that we are to have. The completion of joy comes by emptying ourselves. So that means, friends, that it's not wrong to have ambition. Matter of fact, I think it's good to have ambition. It's not wrong to even look to your own interests. I think this passage even up in verse 4 tells us that we should look to our own interests. What's wrong, Paul tells us, is selfish ambition. Conceit, arrogance. What's wrong is not looking to the good of others. That's what's wrong. Trying to invest in them. That's what's wrong. Selfishness. Wanting things to be done your way so you can be happy and make it and have the easy life. That's what's wrong. Never having a mind to serve the good of others. Never actually trying to impart Christ into others. And even just do the basic commands for the good of others. That's what's wrong. See, until we all learn from Christ that joy is found by emptying ourselves, we will never really know what it is to be full of the love of God and everlasting joy. Until we get this and understand that everlasting joy does not come by being full of ourselves, but by emptying ourselves. I've been a pastor, guys, for almost eight years now. Discipled people another four years before that. I've been married for 14 plus years. And I can tell you that virtually every single problem I run into in counseling or even in my own life is a failure to obey this simple idea. Difficult idea to live out, but this simple idea. Virtually every single time, it's the same thing. Right here, not emptying self. See, there is a holy warfare in the world, folks, that the unholy trinity of sin, Satan, and self are trying to get you into. They want you to... Be full of yourself. To give in to yourself in all of your urges. And every single time you do, in terms of it being disobedient to Christ, every time you do, you should know. You might get a little, little bit of quickness of pleasure, but you compromise everlasting, eternal joy. We love to go back to the garden, don't we? We love to go back to the garden of Eden and reach for the fruit of the tree so that we can be like God. We're so full of ourselves and our own pursuits, aren't we? But it is only until we empty ourselves will we really know what it is to live and to love. Remember the words of Jesus. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Jesus could say that because it described what He was doing in the world. Perhaps we can recall at this point that He was even thinking about the praises of the angels that He walked away from. Only to give them up for the body of a man and even the curses of man. But listen, Jesus knew that was a good trade because He was looking to His reward. And so must we, Restoration Church. We must look to our eternal reward. Do you want a great marriage? Do you want deep and abiding friendships? Do you even want to have a good job, an enjoyable job? Empty yourself. 
Empty yourself. Pour out the ways that you are jockeying to get your own way. Stop paying so much attention to what you aren't getting from others. Empty yourself and go pour yourself into others. And that's going to require a lot of you. Inconvenience, difficulty, vulnerability. But listen, this is the mind of Christ, which is yours, Christian, that leads to your joy. You say, okay, Nathan, how do I do that? Second point. First one we say is the way to the fullness of joy is to have the mind of emptying yourself. Secondly, the way to be full of joy is to have the mind of a servant. The way to be full of joy is to have a mind of a servant. Verse 7. He emptied himself. How, Paul? By taking the form of a servant. That word for servant there is the same word we get our word slave. Just think about that. Jesus was fully God, but emptied himself. That is, set aside his privileges by taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a slave. Now just think about this. If some other earthly king of great wealth were to do something like this, it would incite books and stories that generations would tell. But here, we're talking about the Son of God did this. The King of glory took on flesh and became a slave to sinners. This is the mind of Christ that Paul is calling the Philippians to have. And this is the mind of Christ that we have in Christ that Paul is calling us as a church to have. Remember those words of Jesus. I came not to be served, but to what? Serve and to give my life as a ransom, as a payment for sin to many. Bring about life and love. Christian, behold your God. This is what He's like. And to think again that He did all of this willingly, knowing the task before Him. Even this, the more that we think about this, incites more wonder of Christ, doesn't it? And so when we consider the ministry of Christ in this way, where do we ever get off of thinking ourselves as anything more than servants? We empty ourselves. We Christians, this is our calling card, right? We empty ourselves by setting aside any rights or privileges that we may think that we deserve by taking the form or the nature of servants. That's what we are. That's what we do, brothers and sisters. This is who we are. So if ever there is a task that you think is below you, look at Jesus, the one that washed the feet of disciples, knowing them in, that just in a matter of hours, he's gonna, they were all going to run away from him in his darkest hour. He still washed their feet. If ever there's a person that you think doesn't even deserve your service, consider the fact that he washed the feet of Judas, who he knew was going to betray him. And consider all of this, all the while knowing that this servant, this slave, Jesus Christ, was none other than heaven's darling, the Son of God. Oh, Christian, don't you, don't you see that the way to the completion of joy is by looking at Christ and having a mind of selflessness and service? Now, some of you may say that are here this morning, you may say, listen, I don't want to be a servant, Nathan. I don't want to be a slave. I want to be something in the world. I don't like this whole business of emptying myself. I've gone to the best schools. I've been trying to advance so I can be somebody. I don't like this stuff. But friend, let me ask you, if that's you, if you think the way that you're going to find the completion of joy 
is by promoting yourself, going to the best schools, getting the best job, getting the most acclaim from the world, getting the most people to like you. Just do me a favor. Go read two or three biographies of people that you think sort of represent what you're after. And then you come back to me and tell me if you think they found the pathway to pleasure. Here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that they aren't. You're going to find that they didn't find the pathway to pleasure. You're going to find they're some of the most unhappy people in the world. And even the ones that are happy, you're going to find that they're not happy for the reasons you think they're happy. The reason is, friends, that we are called to live a life that is in keeping with the God that we were made to reflect. Selflessness is in service is the pathway to pleasure. Even though this world is telling us the very opposite. This world is telling us, indulge yourself. Gratify your desires. And again, all we find is, over and over again, we see it's not working, folks. But I tell you what is, Jesus Christ and His pattern of selfless service. You see, friend, the Lord has this world rigged. He's got this whole thing rigged. He made the world to fit in a certain way. And so the mind or attitude of self-promotion, fame, and fortune that leads to individualistic ease and joy is a lie that many people are buying into. And I can tell you from experience, friends, I can tell you from experience that there is more joy in serving a poor Haitian rice under a tree than there is in having a wonderful steak served to me at some fancy steakhouse. I can tell you that there's uh, there's a time in my life when I was paid to play baseball, uh, had my name in the newspaper, had kids line up to to for me to what I say devalue their baseballs and sign them. Uh, I've done this, played in front of all those people, um, and I can tell you there's so much more joy in teaching my five year old son how to hit a ball off a tee in some back forgotten field. There's so much more joy in that than there is in the other. That's because this is the way that God made the world. Because this is who Jesus is. He reveals God to the world. True greatness is seen in Christ by emptying yourself and taking the form of a servant. And so the way to be full of joy is to have the mind of emptying yourself, serving others, but we need to ask how or why. Third point. The way to be full of joy is to have the mind of obedience. The way to be full of joy is to have the mind of obedience. Verse 8. We're just walking right through. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. So not only is Pastor Paul highlighting the obedience of Christ as the kind of mind that the Philippians should have, we'll take a look at this in a second, but notice there in the text how he highlights the radical nature of Christ's obedience to the point of death further deep, even death on a cross. Now, maybe there were some in Grace Church Philippi that were saying, listen, I don't need to do that. I mean, that's a little extreme, isn't it, Pastor? Fasting? Seriously? Come on, man. Right? Make disciples? I got Netflix to watch and video games to play. And Paul is saying that it's not extreme. Radical obedience is not extreme. Christ's obedience, Paul is saying Christ's obedience was so extreme that he not only lost his life over it, he suffered a terrible death because of it. And so if you are going to be a church united in the gospel, which is what Paul is calling, you too are going to have to mind to not only obey, but to radically obey. 
And let's not forget, again, guys, as you think about that, when you hear radical obedience, you start thinking joy is being compromised. But remember, the whole governing phrase in here is chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy. Paul is after the joy of the Philippians and in himself. In other words, radical obedience is not opposed to joy, but it is headed directly towards joy. And we know that from Hebrews 12, right? For the joy set before him, what did Christ do? He endured the cross. He obeyed the call to suffer in the cross. And so this, is, this obedience informs then the what, the who, and the why of Christ's service. We said that Christ emptied himself, became a servant, but a servant of what? A servant of who? A servant why? Uh, well, what obedience? The, we're talking about obedience. A servant that obeys the Bible. God's word. That's the what. The Bible, friends, is the revelation of God's will to be obeyed for the good life. The Bible is the revelation of God's will. This is a good gift from us. I know. Listen, I'm with you. Sometimes I read this ain't sounding too good, right? A little hard. I'd rather stay at home and again play some video games. But this is good for me. This is the revelation of God's good will for us. And so Christ obeyed God's word. He obeyed passages like Isaiah 53, where he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was obedient to bearing griefs, carrying sorrows. He was obedient to being pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. And the who and the why of Jesus' obedience was for the glory of His heavenly Father. You can see that reflected again down there in verse 11 where Christ is doing all of this for the praise and the glory of His heavenly Father. So the Word of God is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of our glorious Heavenly Father that made us for Himself. And it pleased the Son to obey the Word because it was magnify His Heavenly Father. Having the mind of obedience to the Word of God for the glory of God is the way we bring about the completion of joy, friends. And I realize that when I say that, for some of you, that sounds, like, that sounds as logical as a football bat. That makes no sense. Right? Following the Bible is the completion of joy. Are you kidding me? But listen, I realize that when some people, when you say things like that, obedience to the Bible brings about the completion of joy, you think that that's sort of opposed to your joy. Most of us that say that, many of us say that, but, but we've never actually tried that. You say that without having tried it. I love that quote from G.K. Chesterton when he said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. God's Word is good. You've got to trust God more than yourself that it is good. And you need to know that at the end of the day, if you're not giving your life to Christ and following Him in obedience, it's because of one reason. You don't trust Him. That's it. You don't trust His plans for your life. They seem either too hard or too boring. See, when I meet with Christians who are going through a season of apathy or doubt, Rarely have I found that same person in a season of radical obedience. Never happens. See, the issue is a failure to trust that God's revealed will in the Word of God for the glory of God was the pathway to pleasure. They just are not interested in doing it, or they just think it's boring, and they think other things are better. So they are trusting other things, by the way. If you don't have faith in Christ, that doesn't mean you don't have faith. You have a lot of faith in something else. But for Jesus, it was the pathway to pleasure. 
obeying the will of God. It was the pathway to pleasure. Emptying himself to the point of radical obedient service was the mind that led to the completion of joy for Christ. And this is the preeminent example that Paul is calling the Philippian church and any gospel-believing church to. To have the mind of Christ which is ours. To empty ourselves in service to radical obedience to the Word of God in order to bring about the glory of God in service to others. You say, that's hard. You're right. Real. I mean, it's like hard enough, like cross-like hard. Fourthly, we have the mind of emptying ourselves, having the mind of servants, having the mind of obedience for the word of God to the word of God for the glory of God. And fourthly, the way to be full of joy is to have a mind of excruciating loss. We just keep going down. The way to be full of joy is to have the mind of excruciating loss. What do I mean by that? Take a look at verse eight. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. There's the loss. Even death on a cross. There's the excruciating. Paul is saying that Christ was obedient to the point of death and to the point of losing his own life. And not only losing his life, but losing it in the worst way possible on the cross. Christ not only willfully emptied himself of his privileges of deity, he not only took the form of a servant by being a man, he didn't even limit himself to doing the minimum amount of obedience. He was willing to give up his whole life and do so in the most shameful, most painful ways. You see, Jesus held nothing back. He held nothing back. Bask in the glow of the glory of your King, Christian. This is how good he is. See, when you go back and read the Gospels, it's awe-inspiring to read and consider that the whole time Jesus is being followed by those crowds, by those masses, and they're all amazed at his teachings. It's amazing to be thoughtful of the fact he knew the whole time he was going to give all of that up and be killed. For the same people that were coming to follow him. And as difficult as that is to imagine, remember, he'd already given up the praises of the angels. I'm sure that was much harder. So there was something more important to Jesus than the conservation of his own life and his own ease and his own position. There was something more important to Jesus than the conservation of his own life, of his own ease, of his own position, and he held nothing back to get it. Whatever that is, we ought to be saying, then that's what I need. That something that was more important was the praise and the glory of his Father as he paid the ransom note for sinners on the cross. That's what was most important. He was willing to hold nothing back for that. And so I can assure you that difficult though it was, he would do it all over again. It was worth the loss of the praise of the people and the preservation of his own ease. It was worth it for him. The mind of Christ that leads to the completion of joy is a willingness to suffer excruciating loss if it means the glory of God and the good of others. See, some of us Some of us are holding on to something that we think that by holding it back, we can maintain some level of protection, security, and eventual joy. But we know that by holding on to it, we don't match the mind of Christ here. Suffering loss, pain, vulnerability. That's what Jesus did. So for some of us, that may be in a sort of lack of forgiveness. We kind of hold that back. We don't want to offer forgiveness could be something even more risky than that. 
So my encouragement to you, Christian, would be to trust God. Have the mind of Christ. Be willing to suffer loss if it means that God and the good of others may gain. That's what it means to really live. See, in a society that is discipling us to lean into our own rights and privileges, we are confronted here with a Savior that was willing to give them all up and call His followers to do the same. Listen to this. Just think about this. Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Turn the other cheek. They ask for your tunic, give them your cloak. They ask you to walk a mile, walk two. And maybe hardest of all, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. Have this mind of Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, suffer excruciating loss by emptying yourself. Yes, serve your own interests. Paul said that. Yes, serve your own interests. But also serve the interests of others. In this love and in this you complete joy. Because by doing this, you picture to a watching world that there is something better than personal decadence and personal convenience. There's something better and that's what I'm after. That's what we are after. And I'll lay it all down if I can gain it. And you say, Nathan, I can't do that. You don't know what's been done to me, Nathan, when you ask me to do that. You, you don't know how hard it is. You don't know what you're asking me to do, Nathan. Well, beloved, I'm sure that's true. I don't know. I don't know what's been done to you. I don't fully understand how, it all, how hard it is to have the mind of Christ in whatever that situation is you're thinking about right now. It's true. I don't. But here's what I do know. I do know that there's no one like Jesus. There's no greater love than Jesus. There's no greater power than Jesus and the Spirit that tends to us that are in Him. His ways are good. You might have to might have to go to a cross to communicate that. So what do we do? What do we do here in light of this? How do we get to a place in our lives as a church where we're not just going through the motions of Christianity? I'm tired of going through the motions of Christianity. I, there was a time in my life when I did that, and it's really that's why people say Christianity is boring, because I did that. I was there. So how do we get here? Because we hear these truths, and if you're anything like me, I'm reading this going, man, this is hard. So how do we get here? How do we get to be a people like this? We're living on mission, doing the hard work of making disciples, sacrificing our time, our talents, our treasures for the glory of God and the good of others and see something happen in Northwest D.C. See something happen that just makes no sense unless the Gospel's at work, Spirit's alive in us. How do we get there? How do we live out these ideas and be seeing this kind of change in the life of our church? How do we cultivate greater depth in the unity of the Gospels? We strive side by side for the faith of the Gospel here in our city. How do we do that? Well, again, we empty ourselves. We become servants. We become obedient to His revealed will. We're willing to suffer excruciating loss. But you say, yeah, but Nathan, like I know that's what the Bible says, but how do I get there? Last point. This is our answer. The way to be full of joy is to have the mind of worship. Is to have the mind of worship. 
See, it would be easy to conclude by the example of Christ here that, well, you know, Nathan, Jesus did that because remember what you said, he was fully God. I'm not fully God. And so God's expectations of me can't be the same. Well, friend, go back and read verse 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves. This is the church. Which is what? Yours in Christ Jesus. You have the mind. The expectations are the same because the righteousness of Christ has been brought upon you. So the mind that Paul is calling us to here in the example of Christ is ours because it has been given to us by faith, through faith in Christ. So the same Spirit that anointed Christ and propelled Him into the wilderness of this world attends you, church. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it's there. It all goes back to what I mentioned before. Do you trust Him? Do you believe that His ways are better than your ways? Do you believe that this is the way to the completion of joy? Because if you do, if you trust God to will and to work in you for His good pleasure, if you are willing to trust God to finish what He began in us, then this is the way that we get there. We worship our way there. We worship our way there. That's verses 9 to 11. I'm stealing. I'm cheating for next week's sermon. I'm grabbing it. All verses 9 to 11 are a call to worship. On the other side of this cascade down to excruciating loss is a lifting up so high that the entire created order rises to worship. Jesus was well aware of that exaltation that would meet him on the other side of the cross. Remember Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus emptied himself, laid his life down, knowing that he was going to be lifted up. And so we must do the same. Out of the power of the gospel, we go down towards the interests of others, knowing that a day is coming where we will be lifted up. There's the energy. There's the strength. There's the perseverance. We do not listen. We do not work our way towards radical obedience. Hear me. We do not work our way towards radical obedience. We worship our way there. Looking at the glory of Christ. That's what Paul's doing in this whole passage. He's going down, 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 and eventually he gets to 9-11 and he comes up and he's calling the Philippians. Same thing. Look at Jesus. Everything's going to bow to him. You keep your eyes on him and no matter what may come, you're going to be just fine. And it's going to be worth. You're going to get to the new heavens and new earth in two, three, four, five thousand years from now. We're going to be sitting around in the meal and say, I'm glad I laid my life down. I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I did that. I wish I did more, but I'm so thankful that I'm here. We worship our way there. That's what Paul is calling us to. Empty yourselves, becoming a servant, obey the Lord, suffer excruciating loss in order to enjoy the Gospel, in order to advance the Gospel. How? By worshiping the risen Lord who has come and will come again. This is the life of faith. We look back at the Gospel, but we focus on the future of the heavenly city where the eternal reward of Christ is there. He not only is our example, but He's our reward. And not only is He our example and our reward, but He is our power that we wake up every day to, to enjoy and worship. And as we do, we say to Him, I can't do this, Jesus, unless You do this in me. I'm going to take one step right there, and You're going to have to show up. And I'm going to take that step, not because to bring praise to me, but I believe that You are the risen Savior, and every knee is going to bow to You. And so I'm taking this one step, and You're going to bring you're going to meet me in that step and you're going to be glorified even though it might cost all kinds of pain to me i'm trusting you in this jesus show up here i go 
That's for us. That's our life every day. He is not only our example. He is not only our reward. He is our power. He is our worship. He is our strength, our portion. He is everything to us. And so in that countercultural, paradoxical way, sometimes called the valley of vision, we walk side by side with each other towards the fullness of joy, having the mind of Christ. And I love this. I'm going to quote it at length. I'm going to end with this. Prayer devotional called the valley of vision. I think explains this passage here in verses 5 to 8. This is our life as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, this is what true life is. We see it most notably in verse 5 to 8 in the person and work of Christ. But these words, I think, highlight it well. The way down is the way up. To be low is to be high. Broken heart is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess all. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. To give is to receive. That the valley of vision is the place of vision. In the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. Let me, let us find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, that your glory in my valley. Have this mind among yourselves, Restoration Church, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, here comes the up. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I'm glad I'm a Christian. Because if left to myself, I wouldn't live this way. And wherever in the two or three minutes in my week where I might get it right, it's only because of God working in me. And so I call us as a church, you want to do something with your life? You want to see change in the world? You want to see Northwest D.C. come to life and revival break out? Empty yourself. Serve others. Obey God. Suffer loss. And worship Jesus. And we'll get there. And it'll be a good road. It'll be a hard road, but it'll be a good one. And I love you. I'm thankful I get to lead this church. There's no other church I'd rather lead. I can say that for all the elders. But I want to do something. I'm 42. I'm going to turn 42 years old. I think it is. 42 years old. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm entering the second half. I don't want to, I want to do something with my life. I don't want to just come up here and preach sermons and pray and just sort of go play baseball. Who cares? The Gospel is our reward. Christ is our example. And He is our power. And we will see Him.
So let's live, friend, this week. Let's pray. It is true. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We rejoice, Satan loses, and every knee will bow. Every one of them. Even the ones that oppose you, Jesus, they will bow. How thankful we are for the glories of Christ. How thankful we are that we see not only an example, but a reward. How thankful we are that we can look to you as our hope and our strength and our portion. Because God, we confess, apart from you, we can't do this. We can't live like this. So help us. And where we get it wrong, forgive us. And give us grace for repentance to walk in it. Make us willing to crucify our own convenience. That Christ would be exalted. Tell a story, as you already have so well. Tell a story through the ministry of this church and every gospel-believing church in the city and around the world. And we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand.